Thank you. Please be seated. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, already referred to earlier today, but I'd like to um, take you to God's creation of man, male and female. Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's go to verse 24 as we begin. And for context, the beginning of the sixth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that blessing that was ours from the very first, that of all the creatures that you had made, we should be those who know their creator, we pray that once again this knowledge would be uh, put to use in our lives as we not only bear that image ourselves but recognize that which is in the race that you have made even uh, our other fellow human beings. We pray, our Father, that this knowledge of the great dignity and worth of human life for your sake should be valued most among us. And we pray that through these things that righteousness should be brought to bear in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the year was 1 B.C., one year before the uh, Christian era, so-called a, a pagan businessman named Hilarion wrote a letter home to his pregnant wife, Alice. Amid the usual endearments, uh, Hilarion uh, casually wrote to his wife, um, if you're delivered of a child before I return home, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. He meant, of course, that if she gave birth to a baby girl, she should just put it in the trash. She should uh, go and leave it uh, in the customary place where the people dump and burn their garbage just outside the city walls. That ancient practice that was very common was called exposure, leaving a helpless child exposed to the elements to die. It was not a crime in any ancient nation except Israel. In fact, it was a rather common way to deal with what people called unwanted or useless little girls or boys, simply to put them out with the rest of the trash. Hilarion's letter was just the tip of the iceberg, and theirs was a world without human dignity. Life was cheap, and the heart of man toward his neighbor, even his own flesh and blood, even his own child, was very, very hard in those days. It wasn't just the common people. The enlightened philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, 
commended infanticide. Seneca said that getting rid of useless children, his word, was an obligation, and it became Roman law that anyone obviously malformed, any child obviously malformed at birth, was to be killed. Socrates wrote that people should be just as sexually promiscuous as they like, especially when they're outside of their childbearing years, but that people should, quote, his words, dispose of the resulting infant, understanding that the fruit of such a union is not to be reared. You will certainly not find any idea of human dignity in the writings of Aristotle or Cicero, uh, nothing of the virtue of love to our neighbor extolled. Before Christianity, people believed in personal love, but there was no universal love toward man, or as we historically say, charity. The Roman dramatist Plautus wrote, quote, a man is a wolf to a man whom he does not know. And into that cold and calloused world, a baby was born. A baby who barely escaped with his life, but a baby whose life was destined to leave an indelible mark on the world and to reverse the cruelty of our world. That baby, of course, was Jesus. People today are discouraged about the state of the world, and I think for good reason. But let's remember, dear brothers and sisters, that in the centuries when Christianity did not even have a legal existence, when Christians often endured the worst, most excruciating persecutions and torturous deaths, we not only won the hearts of the world, we profoundly changed that world for the better. And it seems we're going to have to do so again. Right from the beginning, Christians had a whole different approach to infants and to children yet in the womb. For example, in one of the very earliest Christian writings called the Didache, it says, quote, you shall not slay the child by abortion, and you shall not kill the child in the womb or murder a newborn infant. Such was the Christian position right from the beginning. Various writers have pointed out this was a universal conviction, not just here or there. Such was the Christian position everywhere from the beginning. And the Christians gave the world a new sensitivity to these things which it did not have. So that in the second century, Tertullian wrote, it makes no difference whether one destroys a life already born or interferes with it uh, coming to birth, it is the same thing. Many other quotes I could marshal to say the same thing. People have collected them. But one historian writes, it was a universal conviction of the church that abortion, for reasons other than the defense of the mother's life, was unquestionably wrong. Well, that's just a matter of fact. What I'd like to consider with you today is why. Why did the Christians have such a radically different view of human life, a, a view that led them to great self-sacrificial and noble practices, uh, uh, practices which began to turn the hearts of their fellow Roman citizens toward their own children before Christianity was even legal. How, how was it that such a downtrodden and despised people could change the heart of such a cold empire? Well, that'll be our brief study tonight. <clears throat> in a day when only the kings claimed to be the image of God on the earth. This announcement that I read to you in Genesis was earth-shattering. The word through Moses to the people of God is this. Look, although you are clay 
every one of you, from the greatest to the least, every person among you is the image of God on the earth, male and female. You are the image of God. Pharaoh has dehumanized you. He has made your lives worth nothing, that he might enslave you. By denying that you are God's image, he has gotten you even to throw your own children into the river. But God has another plan, a plan that is very different from Pharaoh's, a plan for dignity, a plan for your restoration, that you will be restored to your God-given purposes as steward kings of this world. You are going to be God's holy people, renewed in the image of your creator, to have dominion over the creatures. Well, this is the overview of the passage before us. I'd like to make three points. Uh, one, we are made in God's image. Number two, we must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they are in the image of God. And third, this includes children in the womb. These are the convictions that uh, mastered the hearts of the people and led them to do, as I'll tell you, great exploits. This is what began to show the people of the world that uh, there was a better way. First, we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. Well, surely it's repeated several times in the passage. You picked it up from the very beginning. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, as we read the events of the sixth day, we realize that man is like the rest of the creatures God had made in so many ways. Man created on the same day as the other, you might say, sentient creatures. God commanded the earth to bring forth animals according to their kind. For instance, verse 17, and man himself is made of the same stuff, the dust of the earth, Genesis 2-7. So on the one hand, man is very much like the other living creatures of the sixth day. On the other hand, Man is very unlike the rest of living things, being created in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Get that from Ephesians and Colossians, another story. Man is not like the creatures. Man was created body and soul, or spirit, to bear the image of God and the likeness of God. This is, of course, the foundation of all sacredness of human life. Um, you remember a few years ago, there was a beer commercial that was a caused a lot of controversy. It talked about uh, on the 4th of July how we were uh, uh, endowed with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they left out that one, that one little phrase, endowed by their creator. Uh, this is the trouble that we're running into today as we're trying to maintain those rights, the human dignity and value, without a basis. Cutting out that basis that we had, that, that foundation for sacredness of human life, that give us rights and dignity and worth. All people, we uh, urgently say, deserve love, respect, and dignified treatment. The second great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourself. The, Tertullian, again, put it this way in the second century, we are the same two emperors as to our ordinary neighbors, for we are all equally forbidden to wish ill, to do ill, to speak ill, to think ill of all men. We, we have a uh, respect for all 
equally as those made in the image of God. Tertullian's words today probably sound like harmless democratic cliches, uh, equality, true, truths about equality that much of the world has come to accept <coughs> as the basic principles of our society. Oh, of course, citizens and rulers should equally be respected. Of course, they should have the basic dignity uh, afforded human beings. I, none of those principles were at all self-evident in Tertullian's world. There was certainly no idea of equality, not even equality under the law, certainly no equality of dignity and human worth. There was no idea that the stronger had no right to dominate the weaker, socially, economically, physically, militarily. The whole idea of human rights would have made no sense to people in the ancient world. Why would you have rights just because you are born? Where would you get them? I mean, the average free Roman's idea of entertainment involved going to the circuses or shows where people killed each other or died by wild beasts in front of cheering thousands. Uh, the ancient gods certainly didn't care about the lives of human beings. And people still, I suppose, have a similar idea about God or gods today. I heard one man say that if there is a God, I can't believe that he'd be interested in us. I've heard that a couple times, actually. And I wonder what that religion or philosophy does to one's life. Does God not regard humanity as worth any notice? That is what the Stoics taught. But I'll tell you what Christianity said right from the beginning. What practically every Christian indeed has confessed at one time or the other, here from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, true God of true God, begotten, not made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became man. And for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. That this great God, who first made us in his image at the beginning, has then forever dignified human nature by taking that very nature to himself in Jesus Christ. And what more could be said? This is the greatest conceivable proof of the dignity and honor of mankind and the importance of human life. The greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe happened for human beings, not only made in his image, but then the image of God taken up into God himself. No greater honor could be paid to the human race than that the maker of heaven and earth took upon himself the form of the creature out of love, shedding his blood for you and me and for our salvation. Christ's incarnation has invested not just our life, but humanity with such dignity and honor. Do the gods care about men? Uh, Stoics said, no, if, if they even exist. But here, friends, is the true answer. Here is the power. Otherwise, what value has human life? What could lead to such great compassion that we are intended to have of love for our neighbor? We must begin with Emmanuel, God with us, the one that first made us in his image and has then taken up our humanity. We are made in God's image. And that is a radically revolutionary idea. Second, it's an idea with teeth. We must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they're in the image of God. We must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they're in the image of God. 
this quote from uh, Genesis chapter 1 that I read to you about man being created in the image of God, that's taken up elsewhere. James writes, for example, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. John puts it even more starkly. Look, if someone says, I love God, but then hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how could he love God whom he has not seen? Uh, this uh, challenge of the, uh, of the image of God um, in uh, human life, I'll get to Genesis 9 for just a minute here. You're probably already thinking, I'll be there in a second. Uh, co comes up again and again as a basic reason why we owe all men uh, charity, respect, and uh, dignity. And uh, this, uh, this has had already a profound effect, as I said, in our Western world. I came across a touching example of this. I mentioned it before, but I just love it. I'm, I'll mention it again. I know many of you haven't heard it. Some of you have read Vishal Manglawati's book, uh, The Book That Made Your World. Some of you made it book club for Kellums. Anyway, uh, his, uh, uh, Vishal and his wife Ruth grew up in India. Uh, but have traveled all around, and uh, once they were traveling through uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, on the interstate, and there was the sound of loud sirens behind them. It was an ambulance. Tra uh, traffic uh, got over to the side and uh, came to a halt to let an ambulance and some police cars speed by. And Ruth's eyes welled up with tears. How much they care for their people. She said. Um, you see, uh, it's, it's the law everywhere that people are supposed to get over for an ambulance. It does not happen in India, right? It does not happen in much of the world. People have places to go. The sick guy, the dying guy behind me, well, too bad for him. We take so much for granted. The revolution that has come to our world through the gospel that we can't see how much this has made a profound change. Uh, Vishal writes, Greek, Roman, Indian, and Islamic civilizations produced great physicians and surgeons. However, they did not develop modern medicine, partly because they could not create caring cultures. Uh, they had good technical skill, they were motivated to make money, but they did not have the culture of charity, of common care for our fellow man. Because God created man in his image, we have a different understanding of how we are to therefore treat and care for human life. And by the way, because God has created man in his image, we are morally responsible for the protection of the innocent and the punishment of those who take lives unjustly. Of course, you've already thought, I hope, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we read these words, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed for, or because, in the image of God he made man. You're not just taking the life of a bag of dust. That is an assault, God says, on my image. And you will act appropriately.
Deuteronomy chapter 19. God says that by uh, this practice of bringing justice upon the one who has assaulted my image, of putting a murderer to death, you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. Okay? In other words, this is one reason why we can't say, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I, I can't make that decision for someone else. A command in Genesis 9 is given to society that when the innocent are put to death and there is no justice, well, the Lord says the guilt then falls upon us. We are to put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you, he said to his nation. So, anyway, uh, we can't say I'm personally opposed to murder, but you know, and we can't say I'm personally opposed to abortion. Society, right from Genesis 9, before Israel even comes onto the scene, bears the responsibility for the lives of the innocent because they bear God's sacred image. See how it makes its way into law. So, Christians are motivated by the doctrine of the image of God, or in Latin, imago dei, to stand against all dehumanizing mistreatment of people, not just abortion, infanticide, exposure, as I've already referenced, uh, I could also mention genocide, euthanasia, why we can mention a great many forms of human suffering and exploitation that uh, we must stand against, and we recognize our responsibility, not only to protect, but to bring justice for them, because otherwise their blood is on our hands. Positively, we must promote care for the sick, vulnerable, including the adoption of children, often mentioned in respect with this. Uh, the, the early church did this heroically, uh, uh, adopting out a large, very large number of children through the common ministry of the church. This also motivates Christian to promote, Christians to promote education, science, political freedom, many, many other things which are required supports of uh, this principle. So my point to you, number two, just sketching the surface, I realize we must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they're in the image of God. It's the principle with teeth. Third, this includes children in the womb. It includes children in the womb. The majority of abortions uh, in America happen between the seventh and tenth week when a baby is already sucking his thumb, responding to sound, recoiling from pricking or other pain. His organs are present, his brain is functioning, her heart is pump pumping, she has fingerprints, um, so forth. How are we to regard this developing child as a lump of cells, as part of the mother's body? The biblical uh, view is quite different. I'll just sketch that for you now. Both in Hebrew and in Greek, the same word is used to describe the unborn child and a child who has been born. And this is reflected in all of our translations. For example, we recently read in Luke 1 about a baby leaping in his mother's womb. The same word as the baby that was born to Mary in Luke chapter 2. The baby that was in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy, such as uh, the emotional development even of a baby in the womb. That baby had a name, as a matter of fact. You know that 
people have names, and that baby's name was John, already given. Uh, by the way, um, so, uh, don't think that you have to tell everybody the name of your baby or anything like that, but granddaddy, my wife's dad, pointed out to me that uh, it, it is a particularly good testimony to name your baby, not only so you can start praying for it and so forth, but it, it, it reminds the, the whole world, this is a person, people have names. John was the name of that child. And when that child was born, uh, it was still just as much a person. David, as we sang earlier, says, you knew me, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah and Paul speak about being set apart from their mother's wombs. Um, you knew me, you, knew, you knit me together. Job laments, why did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I'd died before any eye saw me. Well, if we search the word of God and try to figure out how we should regard a, a fetus, that is to say a child uh, still in the womb, we should learn that we should regard them as people, as living people, as uh, children, babies, children living and growing in their mother's womb. And uh, the Bible never speaks of anything like, uh, you know, cellular growth or some vague force or anything uh, like that. Uh, Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, the sin nature already of an infant, indeed, uh, this is part of our package. So no texts speak about infants in the womb as anything other than children. And that is what, what they are. By the way, I don't have any objection to the word fetus. I, I do hesitate to use it though. Not that it's not a fine technical term. It's a perfectly good term. But, but I realize that to some people, a fetus is not in fact a, a baby. Uh, the word fetus has been somehow depersonalized and made to sound less human. So I think it would be best, if possible, if we could use biblical language wherever we can, and remind people that we're talking about Exodus 21, children in the womb, babies. The, the Bible doesn't hesitate to do that. And it, it, it doesn't uh, uh, view children pre-birth or post-birth as essentially different. Well this a very brief overview of the biblical data. Now, let me uh, draw this out for you and how this practically was lived out in the early church, how they changed the minds of their fellow Roman citizens in such a time. The early Christians lived out these convictions very consistently. One of the earliest uh, Christian writings, oh, I already quoted the Didache earlier, uh, you shall not slay the child by the abortion. You, uh, you shall not kill a child in the womb or murder a newborn infant. Uh, Church father Anathagoras says, we say that women who use drugs to bring on an abortion commit murder and will have to give account to God for abortion. The African church father Tertullian, it makes no difference whether one destroys a life already born or interferes with it coming to birth. It's the same thing. I mentioned that earlier. Well, many other quotes say the same thing. And uh, so one Christian writer just summarizes, sorry for the repeats here, for the whole of Christian history and till appreciably after 1900, there was virtually complete unanimity among Christians, evangelical, Catholic, and Orthodox on this point. Uh, the church had always recognized these most basic matters and uh, taught their people this. Um, 
and uh, by this, uh, these things began to come into the world. Uh, let's go back to that garbage dump outside the city walls. By 60 AD, we know that something else was, was already happening. 60 AD, as the sun began to come up, Christians would go around collecting those children that had been left exposed to die. Uh, that, that happened so much that it eventually became illegal, and then the Christians did it anyway, despite the risks Despite the risk to imprisonment of their own selves, they gathered up these useless, unwanted children and adopted them out through the church. They began organizing what Callistus called life watches, uh, one of the ancient terms for this practice, life watches, that they would have somebody responsible every day to go and collect abandoned children. <coughs> As you can guess, this radical commitment to life began to awaken the consciences of the Roman citizens. George Grant writes this. In Rome, Christian, Christians rescued babies that had been abandoned on the, expo on, exposure, on the exposure walls, rather outside the city, often illegally, and at great risk to themselves. These foundlings would then be adopted and raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Whenever and wherever the gospel went out, believers emphasized the priority of good works, especially works of compassion toward the needy. The sick were nursed, the unborn protected, the handicapped cherished. The heroes of the faith who demonstrated the grace of Christ through such deeds of kindness during the apostolic era were legion. Well, uh, here, here it is, uh, the, the practical ways that the, that the church began to uh, awaken the conscience of the people. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we need to uh, recognize that uh, this whole matter of abortion is a very complex issue. We are often accused of uh, judging much but helping little. Um, I don't think anybody could possibly say that in the ancient world. Such was the very high commitment of that society. And uh, uh, we need to be able to get back there again. Well, um, let's see. The whole Christian church, as I said, uh, uh, held this early on, uh, as far as we can tell. It continued uh, um, with unanimity until 1900. Christians, evangelical, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, so, sometimes the Middle Ages, things got rather slack, but there was always at least this consistent teaching. But we can say, okay, um, here we are today, and it's a, it's a very mixed bag. Uh, people today don't have this same conviction, and we need to recognize this is... Uh, this is another dimension of the problem today. Long-term spiritual and psychological damage from abortion uh, has wreaked habit on about one out of every four women in this country who have received an abortion before they turned 45. Uh, putting it a different way, I'm sorry that this is confusing you, about one out of every four women in this country have had an, had an abortion before age 45. 
a huge qualitative study was done and published in the American Journal of Physicians and Surgeons called, quote, Women Who Suffered Emotionally from Abortion, a Qualitative Synthesis of Their Experience. They surveyed nearly 1,000 post-abortive women, and they found this, quote, over 49% reported believing the fetus was a human being at the time of abortion. 66% said that they knew in their hearts they were making a mistake, and they underwent the abortion. 67.5% revealed that the abortion decision was one of the hardest decisions of their lives. And it went on to report the effects of such heartbreaking decisions. The study went on to say, while only 13% of those women who had visited a psychiatrist, psychologist, or counselor before the first pregnancy ending in an abortion, 67.5% visited such professionals after their first abortion. Only 6.6% of respondents reported using prescription drugs for psychological health prior to their first pregnancy that ended in an abortion. 51% after, so forth. These data suggest that women as a group generally were psychologically healthy before their first abortion. And you might ask then, why are so many abortions happening then? If it is such an agony to them, even while they are going through it. If half of them know that what they are doing to their own child, report that. If they are going to suffer so much afterward, why are they doing it? Approximately 58% of women reported that they had an abortion to make others happy. And others say they simply did not have enough support or encouragement from others to make the choice that they wanted to make. Here's why this is so important. Um, this issue is, is commonly considered today a political issue, a rights issue, a psychological issue, a sociological issue. All, all that is involved one way or the other. But Christians, we have a more penetrating insight into this problem. Abortion is not just a health problem, a political problem a sociological problem. First of all, it's a sin problem, uh, a sin problem that uh, leaves a great, great scar. But we have a solution. A, we have the answer for sin problems. It is sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, so that where sin abounded, grace might much more abound. Paul participated in the murder of many innocent Christians, but it was to illustrate God's saving power, patience, mercy, and grace that he was made to bear the gospel to the Gentiles. Everyone needs to understand that as hard as some sins are to bear, Christ has come to bear them away. And that what, what so many people in this country uh, seek for in their, these agonizing years and years after, after an abortion is what Jesus alone can give. And one more thing, practically speaking, the lives of so many women, they say they are choosing against their better instincts. They are choosing what they do not want to choose because they lack support and encouragement and love, the very things that God has blessed the church with. You see, we have the answer to these difficult problems in Jesus and in the love of our hearts. Well, we've considered these uh, three uh, principles that uh, in the scriptures we are made in God's image. 
and we must therefore treat others with sacred dignity and value as those in the made of the image of God. This also includes children in the womb. It's something that we know as Christians that the early church lived out in a remarkable way. It's something that even those who are getting abortions today who are not Christians, they know too, and it's killing them on the inside. And so it is that uh, we seek to uh, advance again the uh, biblical truth with compassion in our day. Now, there's one more thing that we need to consider before we conclude, and that's the matter of difficult circumstances. I know that some of you have questions on this. Now that this is a matter of states' rights, these things come up again. What about this? What about that case? What about the other? Let me see if I can handle a few of the difficult circumstances very briefly. The mother's health. Statistically, there are a few situations, very few, where pregnancy can seriously threaten the life of the mother. Ectopic pregnancy is a well-known uh, case of this, where gestation takes place outside the uterus in the fallopian tube, and uh, there, there, there are rare cases when and the abortion, in this case, can save one life, otherwise both will be lost. The church has generally recognized the moral necessity of saving the mother's life in such a situation. Uh, by the way, all the states that have restricted abortion have made this an exception, that if the mother's life is uh, truly in danger, uh, then her life can be saved by, by an abortion. Otherwise, both will be lost. How often does this happen? You might talk with Steve Kellum very, very rarely, but it happens. Sorry, frequently? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, pregnancy that threatens the life of the mother. I'm sorry, I thought you told me that they were very rare. It's like in the, well. Well, you know, statutory silence is very rare. Okay? You're talking about John Reed to save the mother's, to save the mother's life if she has that pregnancy, later her life, later the pregnancy. Very rarely do they ever save the mother's life. The mother's life is really threatened. And I, so, anyway, 1.5% uh, I think is ectomic pregnancy, something like that, right? Uh, and uh, not, not all of them are life-threatening and so forth. Uh, C. Everett Koof, former Surgeon General, uh, he, gave, he, he gave a much lower percentage, he said, of, of, uh, of women whose lives were actually in, in danger, practically speaking. Medicine has developed. I'll, I'll refer all such medical questions to Steve. The point is, uh, when, the, when, when two lives are going to be lost, uh, abortion is able to save one life, and this has been carved out in law as an exception. And as I say, the church has generally recognized also the moral necessity of saving the mother's life. It's an agonizing choice. I don't say it must be made, but it has been often made. Second, pregnancies caused by rape or incest. Understandably, victims of crimes who did not choose to get pregnant uh, not only uh, feel tremendous humiliation, shame, and anger, rightly, uh, the act of incest uh, increases the risk of severely handicapped children and so forth, and yet, um, the, uh, the uh, circumstances regarding the conception uh, should not have any bearing on whether or not a child uh, is aborted. Uh, we might say it this way, children are not to be killed because of the sins of the father. Two wrongs don't make a right. In fact, the law of God said uh, first degree rape cases, uh, it's the rapist who should be put to death, certainly not the child. So. The father 
uh, ought to be required to pay for his sin when possible, but not the child being losing his life, her life, for the sake of the father. Secondly, when rape and incest are acts of violence against the mother, uh, that is a grievous sin, but so is also abortion against the child. And so uh, we, we uh, need to sympathize with these women who are going through terrible pregnancy with, uh, you know, possible incest or a rape for uh, the, these, uh, these difficulties, but recognize that the child that she bears has done nothing wrong. Third, and finally, pregnancies involving fetal handicaps. This is, this is difficult, but it's a very, very severe handicap. I'm not qualified to uh, handle all, all cases of uh, what's going to happen and how. Again, I'll refer you to a doctor for that. Uh, I, I recognize that taking care of handicapped children can require tremendous sacrifice. We know of people that have known what they are getting into and have chosen to do this, been very active in the pro-life community and had a remarkable testimony because of the children that, uh, that they cared for. While this difficult, painful experience for a parent uh, is uh, to be um, uh, understood, taking of all innocent life is forbidden by God. Anybody get a hug or a kiss today? I got a couple from the, uh, the lovely Down syndrome young man that was with us visiting this morning. Um, yeah, he, he wouldn't have made it in most countries. Uh, what a, uh, a great loving individual. Just saw the first Down syndrome uh, uh, young woman uh, graduated college, uh, interestingly, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, fetal handicaps are, uh, once again, uh, not to be a matter for abortion for the same reason as that we wouldn't take the life of handicapped children at any age. Um, and when we take care of handicapped children in this life, we, we have a shaping influence on our society's view of life. When it costs us, uh, then the world takes notice. Well, in conclusion, you've been very kind to deal with all these statistics and uh, all these matters. This, this is still a very large issue politically and numerically. About one in five pregnancies still end in abortion today. About half of those are now through the abortion pill over 54% anyway. Understanding how Christians, however, have made a difference in the past not only helps us maintain that difference today, but gives us hope for the future. We have made a difference, we continue to make a difference, and just as the world was uh, delivered from the scourge of abortion twice before the modern time, so we must continue to work for a third victory. Jacques Derrida, the most eminent philosopher of postmodernism, a man who's openly, who is openly antagonistic to the Christian faith, nevertheless admitted this. Today, the cornerstone of international law is the sacred, what is called the sacred inhumanity. You should not kill. You should not be responsible for a crime against the sacredness of man as your neighbor. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. You do not know what the world owes to the imago dei, this doctrine of God's image in man. And, dear friends, we need to recognize that not only have we made a profound difference, but we can make a profound difference again. Uh, <coughs>
Christianity doesn't hesitate to speak about the sacredness, the dignity, goodness, love, morality, sanctity of life, immortality. Such words regarding mankind are not empty religious sentiments, but the natural language of those who know that their creation and redemption is by a loving God who has made us in his image. We need to hear it. The world needs to hear it. And then righteousness will again prevail. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have blessed the dust of the earth with the great privilege of bearing your sacred image. We pray that you would renew us in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after your own image, that your name may be praised in the earth. We do desire that uh, your people who have known your will and who have thereby uh, received that great love for humanity from the very heart of our Savior himself, whose compassion has given us life. We pray that the overflow of such loving compassion, of uh, uh, such uh, remarkable uh, lives of service to our fellow human beings would again deliver the world from a coldness and deadness of heart and renew again the respect not only for the creature.